All right, folks, before we get to the podcast, before we get to Mike Quackenbush, a promise is a promise. We here at It's Time to Fight encourage you to go check out Mike Quackenbush's Till We Make It YouTube channel. We're going to take the link to that, and we're going to put it in the description of this podcast. Three times a week, Mike Quackenbush posts a video to YouTube. They are informative. They are educational. They're inspirational uh, to uh, to people who want to get into the world of wrestling. There's uh, a video about what to do with your merchandise. There's a video how to earn yourself uh, a violent spot, things like that. Lots of great content, lots of great stuff from a very, very, very great wrestling mind. Go check out Mike Quackenbush's Till We Make It YouTube channel. From pillar to post and coast to coast. This is a one-man gang. You're listening to a book. Hey, do you watch wrestling? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time! Matthew Terry, and this is the It's Time to Fight podcast. Thank you so much for clicking on that play button. I say it every single week, and I mean it every single week. I appreciate every single click that that play button gets. Uh, We are, of course, on Podbean. We are on Spotify. We are on iTunes. But most of all, we are on timetofight.ca. Of course, we encourage you to go over to timetofight.ca and check out all of the content uh, check out all the past episodes that we've done of this podcast. You can go back to episode number one and listen to Matthew Grant. You can go back and listen to Angelina Love. You can go back and listen to Mark Wheeler. You can go back and listen to Kobe Durst, Nikki Payne. Alf Snow's been on the show twice already. Uh, Dasher Hatfield. Thank you again to Jimmy Corderas, who was on the show last week. Uh, a lot of great content, a lot of great interviews, a lot of great chats that I've had with uh, with my guests. This is episode 21. We got uh, 20 great episodes you can go back and listen to at timetofight.ca. Um, not a long lead in this week. Not a big introduction. Uh, just uh, time and life uh, really took me up this, this, uh, this past week. A uh, lot of stuff uh, going on around the household. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it left very little time to get on here and do this introduction. And uh, and I definitely want to do Mike Quackenbush the uh, the the justice uh, of a great introduction. Uh, I've wanted to speak to Mike for a long time, even before this incarnation of It's Time to Fight. I've wanted to interview Mike Quackenbush, um, but you know, being shy, being a little introverted, I I you know I shied away from it. Uh, even though everybody knowing that I'm such a huge fan of Mike Quackenbush was get a hold of him. Get a hold of them. Get a hold of them. Get a hold of them. And, uh, and people were giving me contact information. Uh, uh, you know, I didn't want to. And then I think it was Dasher Hatfield who, finally, yeah, just get a hold of him. He'll do it. And I think that's what flipped the switch because I know that Dasher Hatfield and Mike Quackenbush uh, uh, work closely together. And I think that's what just flipped the switch and just like, yeah, I'll just get a hold of him. 
and I, I reached out to, to, to Mike Quackenbush, and uh, we did set something up. Um, Mike Quackenbush is a very busy man, and uh, he, he has a lot of stuff on his plate, uh, so I appreciate him making time to, to chat with me. Um, the day that we did the interview, uh, he's very, very, um, he's, he's, he's very punctual. That's the word I'm looking for. He's very punctual. Um, I, I got a hold of him the day before we were good with the interview. And, um, as, as you guys know, I do a lot of these interviews on the phone. Mike Quackenbush didn't want to do it on the phone. He wanted to do it, uh, over Skype and Skype is something that I've experimented with, but it's never, I've never, I haven't figured out how to, to do that on my end. Now, uh, Mike gave me a couple of tips, uh, and that I'm still looking into, but, uh, he, he insisted he wanted to do it on Skype. Now I have Skype. Um, but as I said, I can't record it. So Mike Quackenbush wanted to use Skype so badly that he, well, we'll do the interview on Skype and I'll record it. And so we did that. Now, the great thing is I accommodated my guest. I accommodated someone who I'm a huge fan of. And the downfall is that listening to the files, you can tell that it's his end that is recording. And that's, I'm not complaining, but you can kind of, it kind of sounds like he's interviewing me in the aspect of he's pretty clear. And I'm, uh, I'm, I, I got a little bit of an echo. You can kind of tell that uh, I'm on the, uh, the opposite end of Skype. Um, now, as punctual as Mike Quackenbush is, um, I, I loaded up my Skype, uh, that I had on, uh, on one of my laptops and, uh, it didn't, it, it didn't work. It sounded like, um, a helicopter, like, and, uh, that's, uh, and Mike Quackenbush is telling me this. I can hear Mike Quackenbush perfectly, but it, it, I guess I sound like, and, uh, that was not something that we were going to do an interview with. So I, uh, I tried reloading it, tried re uh, redoing the, you know, the, the microphones and, and all that great stuff. Um, but that didn't work either. So I had to run to my computer downstairs to the studio and I had to load Skype onto that computer. And luckily, because, and I'll tell you why, luckily, because the computer that I have downstairs, if you've ever seen me do my podcasts live, you know I have Frankenpooter. And Frankenpooter is a computer that one day I dumped my Tim Hortons coffee on, and the keyboard essentially is completely fried. Um, there's a few buttons at work. I know which ones work, and sometimes if I'm being playful, I'll just use those buttons like when I need to. Um, but everything else in the computer works perfectly. It's just the keyboard is fried. So I got an external keyboard, and now I just plug that in, and it cancels out the other keyboard. Um, then Frankenpooter, uh, the mouse, the, the touchpad mouse, it worked. Um, but then something dropped on it. Um, it was a chair. <laughs> Somehow, um, a chair like the the computer was on the on the floor, and uh, I was doing. Um, the reason it was on the floor is because I was doing a live thing, and it was underneath. And then when someone moved their chair, they put their chair on top of the of the touchpad and sat down, and all you heard was crack. But again, 
everything else in the computer works perfectly. And it just just the circumstances dictate that this is the computer that I use. So now I have an external mouse. I have an external cal- keyboard. I have Frankenpooter. Uh, that and that's what I use for the podcast. Um, it's it's kind of more out of loyalty and stuff. Um, anyway, so I, I it's it's it, but it's also the computer which um, for the, one of the circumstances is that the setup that I have, the rig that I have. It works with this computer. It doesn't work with my other laptop, with my better laptop, with my sleeker, however you want to put it, laptop. Um, so I was lucky in the aspect that I came down here to Frankenpooter and I plugged in, or I, I sorry, I loaded uh, Skype, and I the entire time I thought, like, I'm not going to get to talk to Mike Quackenbush, uh, and I was so embarrassed. And so I loaded Skype and uh, logged in and just went for it. And he heard me. He heard me uh, perfectly. Uh, luckily, I was able to, uh, to to use my rig, to use the headset, to use the microphone, to use all that great stuff. Uh, and Mike Quackenbush and I spoke. Now, uh, I, I did not edit uh, the, 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 the audio files that you're about to listen to because I want you to... I want you to experience every moment that I have with Mike Quackenbush. Uh, he is definitely a unique individual. I loved every minute talking to him. And uh, uh, he invited me to, uh, to discuss uh, other things in the future. And that, that's also on the, uh, on the, in the interview. Um, but he, he, uh, I think he genuinely, I, I don't think it was a sales pitch. I, uh, he genuinely wants me to, uh, to give him my opinion on uh, Till We Make It. And uh, I encourage everybody to uh, to watch till you make it or till we make it. Which uh, again, we're going to put the link to that in the description of this podcast, and then let Mike Quackenbush know what you think of it. Uh, go over to YouTube, check it out, give it a rating, uh, and let M- Mike Quackenbush know what you think of till we make it. So I'm not going to waste any more time, and uh, I'm going to get to my interview with Mike Quackenbush. Right. So it's getting my voice. Would you speak a little? Well, what would you like me to say? Oh, that's perfect. I got levels on both of us, and we sound great. So, um, Wonderful. Just so I understand uh, post-production for what you do, do you want our voices on one track, or you want me to separate yours from mine and send you two tracks? Uh, if it's, if it's uh, let me think. Probably better if it was two tracks. Okay. Yeah. yeah, this this thing I use, it's free, by the way. It's called Call Recorder. Um, I use it for all the podcasts that I do, and it's just like a third-party application that when I fire up Skype, it automatically opens. And uh, when I used to, I, I've made podcasts for a long time. I used to use a program called Audacity. Have you ever used Audacity? Uh, I have never used it, but I hear good things about it. So, uh, well, let me be a dissenting opinion then. I think Okay, then. <laughs> I think Audacity is a bunch of crap. So okay. more than once, I was doing a really crucial interview, and the program just farted on me and lost the track. Uh, so after that happened to me, uh, I'm a big fan of the band They Might Be Giants. and oh, As I, am I, actually. So I was interviewing John Flansburg, and oh, Audacity crapped the bed and lost a 45-minute interview I had with him. I wanted to put my face through the computer. I couldn't believe it. So after that, I thought, I'm never using Audacity again. Ever since I started using Call Recorder, I've never had an issue. So if, it's, if you're looking for an interesting way to do it where you really have 
cool options on the end, like isolating the voices. Call Recorder might be something worth looking into, and it's free. Well, the, the, the program that I use here, I'm just going to minimize my face here. It's called Wave Lab. Hmm. And um, that's like I can hook my, my cell phone into the back and uh, of the, the gizmo here, and then it separates the two files. So oh. I can, you know, I can adjust uh, levels and I can do all that stuff. Because after the wife and child go to bed, that's what I do is I just sit here and edit stuff. Yeah, yeah, right on. So, well, cool. So, all right, man. So, uh, yeah, I am up and recording. So whenever you're ready, I'll just let you take it away, and then uh, we can close out this file. And I'll, I guess the easiest thing to do is I'll just drop it into a Dropbox that we can share and send you the link. Wonderful. Sounds absolutely wonderful. Um, by the way, thank you so much. Uh, I, I'm not blowing smoke when I say this is just absolutely amazing. I am a huge fan of you, and I'm a huge fan of, uh, as you've put it, your flavor of ice cream. Oh, well, thanks for saying so. Um, and I finally got, because I, I spoke to uh, some people that uh, that have worked with you and are friends with you, and I kept mentioning, like, well, you should just reach out and you'd probably do the podcast. And I never have I been nervous to reach out to someone. And for whatever reason, I was nervous to reach out to you. And then I'm just like, you know what? What do I have to lose? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. I'm happy to do this. And uh, once, once we did agree, I started mentioning, like, because I do ring announcing. And so I'm doing like different shows. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have Mike Quackenbush on. And, and uh, I. I, I feel confident to say this, right? I have no problem saying this. Everyone's like, yeah, he's a little strange. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I usually try to get a vibe, like if someone's t spoken to someone and or something like that, like, you know, just to work, you know, because they, they, they're obviously different than what you see on a screen. Sure. And then oh, that's what a lot of people say. Well, I, you know, Mike's a little strange. <laughs> Yeah, uh, a while ago, I had gone out to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I was teaching at a place called The Academy, which is run by Mr. Kennedy. It's what okay. he's doing in his post-WWE life. And he and I don't know each other at all. We've, we've never even passed to shake hands. We don't follow each other online. We don't know each other whatsoever. And before he brought me out, he, he had uh, asked a friend of mine, Eric Cannon. He said, I don't know this guy. You know, uh, what should I expect? And I thought Cannon had an interesting way of putting it. He, he said, I tell this to everybody. He said, uh, there are really only two, two kind of people as it relates to Mike. They're the people that only kind of know the way he appears, like his persona. And then there are the people that, that really do know him. And his persona can be a little off-putting. Um, you just have to get past that. And I thought, oh, that's a good, that's a good way of putting it, I suppose. Um, nevertheless, I think it's fair to say that I can be a tad bizarre. But... Uh, and I there, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And right, I've kind of made a career out of it. <laughs> well, and something that, if I could pinpoint what, what kind of made me the most comfortable or kind of set my mind in the right direction, was somebody said, "Did you ever listen to his podcast with Cabana on the art of wrestling?" And I said, "Well, yeah, of course I did, because I used to listen to Cabana constantly, mm -hmm. and as I said, I'm a huge fan of yours." And they said, that's him. And I, because when I listen to that, like, you're so well-spoken and you're so quick-witted and everything, it almost seemed like you were in character. And people are like, no, that's him. 
that is 110% him. And I'm just like, that is so cool. Like, I can't wait to talk to this guy. Well, I'm glad. And yeah, it, I, I always worry, right? The story that you just shared with me is not uncommon where people say, oh, you know, this person, he was interested to talk to you, but he just felt like he couldn't reach out or he was intimidated because he saw you do this and it gave him the impression that, you know, he just couldn't reach out. And that's not good for, for my long-term longevity, right? If people that I could be networking with feel like I can't talk to that guy, he's too, he's too strange or he's too off-putting or he's whatever, whatever that thing is, <laughs> that's probably not good for my career. Uh, so, All right, so... I, I don't even really know where to begin. Like, as I said, I'm a huge fan. So I know, I know a lot of your background and I, I, I try not to do podcasts where it's the same. So, you know, who trained you and where are you, or, you know, what, who inspired you and who's your favorite wrestler? I try to stay away from that Thank as goodness. much as possible. Um, but I, I like it's, it's, but I, at the same time, I want to ask you, where does this all come from? Like, like I, I, and it's not even just Chikara because I've seen you outside of Chikara and just, and again, the interview with Cabana, like that is just, where does all this come from? Like, did, like, what did you do in high school? Like what, like you seem like the type of person that was heavily into drama and just what, where did, where does all this come from? I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to ask the question of my question. Well, I, I get what you're saying, though. And in high school, I was very much a pariah. The stuff I was into was not in vogue at all. I'm into nerd rock, right? I listen to They Might Be Giants and The Talking Heads and Bare Naked Ladies. I'm into nerd rock bands. So I'm not the guy that's listening to, I don't know, Better Than Ezra or Nirvana or Sheryl Crow at the time. Whatever the things that were moving on the charts that were really influential in mainstream radio, that's not what I listened to when I'm in high school at all. Uh, I listened to the stuff in the periphery. And uh, I, I'm born and raised on Bronze Age Marvel comics. So in an era that predates the ubiquity of superhero culture, this is massively unpopular, right? Like getting caught with a copy of West Coast Avengers in your backpack only means you're about to get stuffed in a locker, is what that means. Mm -hmm. And then you complicate that by liking that most odious of things, professional wrestling. <laughs> Look out, right? So you're just, you're into all these really marginal pursuits. So that really places me like outside of everything. Um, it's a real struggle to kind of like find my tribe in high school. And also, right, everyone knows high school is a process of even figuring out who you are. You don't know who you are in high school. And you probably get it wrong as much as you get it right. Um, so, you know, that's very much me coming out of high school and then leaving for the University of Pittsburgh, where pro wrestling then slowly just kind of begins to corrupt every corner of my life. And... I don't doubt that anyone who's a really impassioned fan of the craft goes through that where suddenly that's all you talk about, it's all you read about, it's everything that you take in, your school, your school projects start to become about wrestling, your, you know, your extracurricular projects somehow touch on wrestling or intersect with that universe, and before you know it, it's just kind of taken over your life. And although I realize there's a somewhat negative connotation when I say it corrupted, um, it's true to an extent because it corrupts the relationship I have with my family. It corrupts all the, uh, you know, the romantic relationships I have with various significant others that I date. It corrupts my professional career outside of wrestling when I, you know, I worked in sales and service for many, many years at a company that specializes in making packaging products like uh, bubble wrap 
and foam packaging. Uh, I worked for a while at a bank. So all those other pursuits are really um, irrevocably impacted by the fact that wrestling just starts to kind of take over everything. And then you can't fill your days with it enough, right? Your appetite for it is so voracious. It doesn't matter how much of it you consume or make. You're really never satisfied. You're always thinking, well, what's the next thing I can make? What's the next thing I can create? Well, I've learned how to do this little part of it, but this is a universe of skills you can, you know, pick up over time if you work hard enough at it. And I just became like an omnivore of pro wrestling. So, the, it, I, 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 like, you're talking about, like, uh, like all these, um, I, I don't want to say, well, you said corruptions. Sure. And... Like growing up, and like, were were you that kid that just would be off to the side and just not doing odd things? Like you're, see, when I when I was younger, um, I was the kid that was off to the side doing stuff, but I wasn't doing it to get a reaction. I wasn't doing it to get an audience. Um, I remember in high school, um, we were there. Uh, we went to an elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the when I went to the counselor, the counselor said, "Well, you could, you would be good at writing, or you would be good at uh, uh, the, I can't remember what the middle one was, but I remember the last one was a teacher. So hmm. a bunch of us went to this school to be a teacher, or to learn about being a teacher. And I remember one of my friends looking over, and I I lost interest like about fifteen minutes in, <laughs> um, and thought like I'm not going to be a teacher. Um, and so he looked over. And I was, I had found these puppets um, on a shelf that was next to me. And I had a, I had a puppet on each hand and and they were talking to each other. Like I wasn't talking loud for everybody to hear me, but he just happened to turn and I'm sitting there and I'm just, I'm having a conversation between these two puppets. And just, that's how I was. And, you know, it's just, I, 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 I don't know. (laughs) But there's a joy in that, right? Like, in that moment, you assign these two puppets, which in somebody else's hands are just like lumps of fabric. You assign them personalities and then start to invent a universe where they're having a discussion, right? They're out at dinner. They're on a yes. date. They're up to mischief, whatever those puppets are doing. And there's a joy to that creation. Yes, for sure. Um, let, let's, let's um, like, okay, you grew up in Pittsburgh. Uh, no, I grew up in oh. eastern Pennsylvania, so I'm from Reading, a small, sleepy suburb of Reading called West Lawn. But once I finish high school, I do go to the University of Pittsburgh. You go to the University of Pittsburgh. It feels just far enough away from my parents that I could tolerate it, yet not so far away that I couldn't occasionally come home to do laundry. Okay. Now, what what type of—now, and I don't mean what type of relationship did you have with your parents, but, ha- like, what was their reaction to you— and your expression. So uh, my parents, and just thinking about my longevity in wrestling right now, right? Like back on May 20th, I, I had my 25th anniversary. So I finished out my 25th year. I think that was good for, you know, a hashtag and two tweets that day. Mm-hmm. And in that, you know, body of strange work I've made, my parents have seen me wrestle twice in 25 years. Um, if I've had, I don't know, 2,000 or so matches, give or take, I, I don't know the exact number. Um, yeah, they've seen me wrestle twice. Okay. They are um, tolerant, I suppose, of the fact that I am 
a wrestler. They are begrudgingly acceptant of it. When we are at a family function, if one of my aunts or uncles dares to raise the question, hey, do you still do that wrestling thing? Uh, I can always like see the grimace come across my parents' face, right? Like they look down, their eyes are cast down at their plate, like, oh, this conversation again. Uh, <laughs> which is always inevitably followed by my Aunt Carol saying, like, you do what Hulk Hogan does, right? And even I, at that point, have to let out a little bit of a sigh because I think, Aunt Carol, we've had this discussion for 25 years. But um, yeah, they're, you know, they're not at all supportive of what I do. They're a little disgusted by it. I think if I was like an attorney or dermatologist, they would both be so much happier. And they still even kind of bring it up. They're like, so you're growing out of that wrestling phase? And I kind of think, you know, I put together a body of work here that would make for a semi-respectable Wikipedia entry, Dad. Um, yeah. You might want to have a look. But uh, <laughs> that's, just, now, that's just it, you know. Where, where, Well, what did mom and dad do growing up? So my dad was a private pilot for Carpenter Technology, a steelmaking company, and he was their corporate pilot. If the president of the company had a meeting and had to go to London, my, they called my dad in the middle of the night. He drove to their private airfield. The president of the company would get in the plane. My dad would fly him. He had one job for 40 years and retired from it, which in this day and age is unheard of, right? Yes, um, for sure. So that's it. My dad knows you are loyal to one company for life at the end. You get a nice retirement package and a watch, and they take care of you into your golden years. So he has, uh, you know, he came out of the Navy, picked up this job as a private pilot. That's his whole life, right? It could, the whole thing is two sentences long. I realize I'm doing my dad a disservice, but um, <laughs> he also had a couple kids. But, yeah, that's him. And what did mom do? So for a while, my mom was a, was a, a homemaker, but then... She, uh, for a while, managed a senior citizen's center, and so a lot of times that was what she was busy doing. There was like a local church where the seniors would gather during the day, I guess, for lack of something better to do. She would also coordinate like Meals on Wheels deliveries for them. So everybody like in our region that had to have a meal delivered because they were homebound or whatever, uh, she would see to it that they got their meal every day. So she did a lot of that when I was a kid. All right, and so... You mentioned how they have seen you wrestle twice, but how they're uh, almost disgusted by the wrestling. Right, that's so probably what, fair to say. <laughs> what, 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 that, that begs the question, what were the circumstances that brought them to watch you wrestle? Um, I was in my hometown wrestling maybe in 1997 or 8, and I think the promoter of that card... Uh, he might even be deceased now. I don't I don't know. Blaine DeSantis was his name. He was an attorney in Reading. For health reasons, he had to relocate, I think, to the tropics, and I think his health failed, and it's possible he's passed away. He gave me a lot of really great opportunities and chances when other people did not, and I'm I'm indebted to him and his whole family, his son, his son Matthew as well. Um, I was in Reading, and I think they knew that the card was not going to draw well, and Blaine had said, would you ask any member of your family who wants to come to just come and attend as our guests? And I thought, okay, I'm not above asking my parents to come and watch me wrestle. So, uh, yeah, and that was one of the last days when I was still living at home. And I think after they came to see me wrestle, I remember by the time I got home from the event that night, they'd already gone to bed. So I think I was 21. I, I must have been, because when I am 21 is when we have the confrontation that goes like this. They said, 
we understand that you're going to go and do this wrestling thing for a while, but if you are, you're not going to live under our roof. So if you want to go and chase this thing, which we think is dangerous and we don't really approve of, you need to move out. You can only continue to stay here if you give it up. And so uh, in one of the fastest real estate transactions of all time, seven days later, I bought a house. And on day eight, I moved out. So my wrestling career went on an eight-day hiatus uh, while I moved house. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so what are you doing while you're wrestling? Like to, to be able to, to get a house, I mean. So there's a period of maybe 18 to 24 months where I juggled four jobs. So I had a bunch of part-time jobs. There were three that I could work during morning and afternoon hours. And then in the evening, I was like an part of an off-the-books crew that installed fiber optic cable for businesses. So if you needed an office to be wired for fiber optic, like overnight, you called this team of guys who showed up in a van, and by the time you walked in in the morning, all the cable was where it was supposed to be. But you were kind of paid off the books for doing this work, and it was through the night. So you were handsomely compensated for being up at 3 in the morning, crawling through, you know, ventilation shafts, dropping fiber optic cable, so that when this business comes in in the morning, they're completely wired up. So I had a lot of sleepless nights when I was 21 and 22, because I had to balance that between the majority of my bookings at the time were in rural West Virginia, eastern Ohio, and Pittsburgh, which was five hours away. So, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm driving five hours to then you know, sleep in my car a lot of times between the shows because I couldn't afford a hotel room or anything. Those were, those days relied heavily on Axe body spray. And then, you know, I would drive home Sunday night so I could meet the crew to get in the black van and start dropping cable again. So you, you've moved out, and this, or this is um, the, the first time that they've come to see you. When is the second time they come to see you wrestle? Second time was maybe only a couple years ago. Once we had moved the Wrestle Factory into Wingate Street on Philadelphia, its current home, mm -hmm. and um, we were filming some stuff in there that we, we needed a closed audience. It was not open to the public. We needed to fill up the seats. And I thought, um, you know, a lot of time has passed, you know, 20 years. <laughs> Let's see if they'd be willing to take another swing at it. So they did come. Uh, they, they were there, right? They did their part as, uh, you know, members of the studio audience. So then when it was all over, uh, a couple of my students were curious to meet them because just it's just the shape of my life. Like my, my family, my real biological family, really is not a factor in my life. My wrestling family, my surrogate family, is very much a part of my day-to-day -day life. So they were kind of curious to meet my mom and dad. So you know, they see this facility that I run and they see my organization and all the people that, that, that work with me, all this kind of jazz. And when it was over, then I went over to see my, my folks and I said, hey, you know, how you doing? Thanks for coming, Mom and Dad. And this is what my dad said. He said, hey, how's your car running? Uh, it's, all, it's all right. You know, it's the same Honda Accord I've been driving for like nine years now. It's, it's doing all right. All right, son, thanks. And off they went. <laughs> so they're not... So they're not heavily into the wrestling, obviously. That could be said. <laughs> However, like... The... And again, I, I don't ask the normal questions, and I I try not to verge too far into, you know, personal life. But it, it, you asked them twice to come watch you wrestle. Did you ever ask them, and they said no? Um, I don't think so. 
I can't, so I you can't gotta, you gotta give them some credit that you know their boy is at hey come watch this wrestling like okay like you gotta give them some credit sure yeah no you're right I, it's not a complete tossing under the bus um and i think you know give or take 18 to 20 more years if they're still around and i'm still <laughs> doing the dance it might be time for number three <laughs> all right fair enough um how long's chikara been going now so we're in our 20th season overall the company's about 17 and a half years old um yeah it's been it's been quite the journey now i know that it's all it's all seasons um but there, there was that there there was that stock gap there like i think it was a was it a year or two that you guys stopped or Right, so the Ashes Project, which kind of eats up seasons 12, 13, and 14, kind of like engulfs, the whole story end-to-end -end takes about three years, but it includes the period of 10 months where instead of Chikara having live events, all the wrestling is companies are having the events. So these are these satellite companies that we had set up to help us tell the story of the Ashes Project when the evil conglomerate, the teeter conglomerate, shuts down Chikara the whole roster divides up and jumps into these lifeboats like wrestling is fun, wrestling is respect. And then it really isn't until the new villain emerges on the scene at the very end of season 13, beginning of season 14, that Chikara proper reforms. So, because I, I, the one thing I've always said to anybody that'll listen is I admire and respect your dedication because I've heard you do numerous interviews and you know you've said more than a few times like i'm i'm not getting rich off of this in fact <laughs> you know like you know my my accountant i think you said i i might be mistaken like saying my accountant is like you know you're you you should stop this like you you're not you're not doing well and so i've always admired and respected your dedication i has it must be hard to be that dedicated or is is this just what you do I, I suppose you're right about that it's just become what i do i am used to having the semi-annual discussion with the team of financial advisors that do our corporate taxes and mind our books when they once again say the smartest thing you could do would be close chikara this year it would be so much better for your for your personal finances um once this is maybe just over a year ago because after a while, they, they will quit. I've had accountants who just say, you know, like, I can't keep advising you on this, right? You never take my advice. Um, they just leave out of frustration. But I've had the same team now for about four years. Um, and maybe two years ago or a year ago, they had put together, just using the access they had to all of the Chikara financial records, they said, if you were no longer running Chikara, this is how much money you, the person, would have had over the last 20 years and it was staggering and they're like does this convince you that this as a as an enterprise is financial folly like are you finally ready to to let us close out these corporations and just be done with it but you're right in that like this is just what i do um to, to the constant chagrin of my financial advisors in part because uh, one i don't know what else, what i would put on a resume if tomorrow i had to go out and try to get a job in the marketplace that was not tied to this. I don't know what that job would be. I, I what, what do you say? Well, I, I've spent most of the last two decades fake fighting with my friends in costumes. Could you, could you hire me for a well-paying position for that? 
What do you think about that? Have you seen my Wikipedia entry? Like, I don't know what you would say. Um, yeah. And I'm also really aware of what, what it means as an entity to so many people that it does play an important role in their lives. And that makes me feel a certain level of, I suppose, obligation. Now, and, and I, just, I just want it for clarification's sake, when the financial advisors say close Chikara and this is what money you would have had, is that if you just if you close Chikara but you continue training and taking bookings and that is that what they're basically saying? Uh, I think that's a lot of it. And also, until August of two thousand seven, I always had another full time job outside of the world of wrestling. Okay. It really isn't until August of two thousand seven when I attempt to like survive on what I can do in the field of wrestling, which has required me to diversify over the years because a, a lot of it is Chikara as a financial loss leader being supplemented by all these other things. So, you know, if, if we have like a, a rough quarter, well, then it's a good thing that, you know, seven keys to becoming a better performer sold well on Amazon.com. You know, I need all these kind of ancillary streams and together their combined effect is we've managed to keep the ship afloat for yet another month. So this is this I, I, I really should think should have thought beforehand how I was going to word these questions. Um, some people would say that you you have people who, quote unquote, drink the Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of uh, loyal. But yeah, there we go. We got a lot. Of, got a loyal, lot of loyal people. Sure. How? Oh, first off, that must mean a lot to have loyal people like that. To be sure. So how do you, like, are these people coming to you and saying, I want to be part of this? Or how, how do you assemble such a loyal group? Well, we don't, we don't recruit anybody. Like, I think of it, you know, the, the, uh, the WWE Performance Center is an interesting example, right? The people that are there have been recruited specifically because they, they must tick certain boxes. The WWE is looking to cast for their TV shows. You know, they have a red one that's on every Monday night, and they have the blue one, and then the purple one, and the yellow one, right? They got to cast their TV shows, and they think, oh, well, you know, if we're going to expand more into China, we're going to need some Chinese performers that speak modern standard Mandarin. So we're casting those people for our TV show. Great. They go out and they recruit those people. What our process is very much the opposite. People come to the Wrestle Factory and say, I want to train. I want to be part of this. I want to learn the art form. Uh, hopefully they've done their due diligence. I, say, I was just saying this Friday night, we had a workshop, which we make open to the public at the Wrestle Factory. And we say, we want you to come in and do one day of training with us for free. Just come in and look at how we do what we do. Um, we don't want you to be... I, I think there's a lot of misinformation about wrestling training. Do, do you show up and get beat up by somebody? What is it? Well, come in and see. Before you give us any money, like, come in and look. Look at how we do what we do. And because over the years I've gotten better at talking about what I believe about the art form, I have attracted people that believe the same thing. And they have become my tribe. The tribe I could not find in high school, I have found now because I am not intimidated to or less embarrassed by the idea of speaking about my view of the craft. 
And I'm very much the wrestling is performance art guy. When people, you know, if I'm on podcasts doing interviews or whatever, they're like, let's talk about the business. Let's talk about the wrestling industry. Like, that bores me. Business mm -hmm. and industry bores me. Boy, will my accountants back up that statement. I'm very much wrestling as art. And I have a particular approach. I have a particular take on that. That's what's in my books. That's what's in my new YouTube series. Like, all of those things. You will hear me speaking very plainly about what my approach and belief is. And by virtue of that, then I have attracted people that feel the same. And I probably also repel people who feel very differently. Which is perfectly fine. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, that, that's the job, isn't it? Right. Like, find the people that see it the way you see it so you can make it together. Well, yeah. But take me to take me to the like the original cast of Chikara because you didn't have these these channels, these avenues to be like, okay, I like this guy's thinking. I like this where this guy's coming from. I like what his vision is. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you assemble that that opening cast of characters? Like, are like I'll give you an example. Down, down up here in Ontario, I shouldn't say down up here in Ontario, there are uh, well people you'd be familiar with, Space Monkey and uh, just different characters like that. So I could go out and put together a, ca a character show, like, a, a, I don't want to say a character show, but a, an expressive show or like characters that'll grab your attention. Mm -hmm. So how do you, is that how Chikara started? Like pulling from other resources or? Well, in the very beginning, we don't know what we're going to be. We haven't figured it out yet. Seasons one, two, and three of Chikara are a lot of throwing it against the wall and seeing, well, that stuck and that didn't. And we also have a lot of people pass through the Wrestle Factory in that time that they do not last long. They'll come in for a while, they get a sense of what the culture is, and they're like, this isn't for me. Um, you know, for whatever reason. They're like, I don't like the international styles, you know. My goal is just to go to the WWE. I'm here to learn American style. Is this a great place for me to further my WWE career? In 2002 and three, no, the Wrestle Factory was not the place to go for that. So, you know, or they look around and they think, well, this is a little too comic booky for me. That's not my taste, right? Like, I like guys in little tight trunks that kick each other really hard, and that's what I want. Well, great. You know what? I think um, Ring of Honor is going to help you be the guy in little black trunks that kicks people really hard. Like, go train with them. Um, but it's a refinement period. It takes us years to really establish our own identity, to have a flavor that's uniquely ours and once that starts to solidify then we really begin to grow exponentially um, in the beginning you know we have one or two people come trickling in the door whereas now guaranteed just in the time you and I have been on this podcast if I go into my inbox someone new will have emailed me about the potential to come and start training as opposed to me waiting weeks to hear for a prospect to come in because it's clearer what our vision is. It's clearer what our approach is. And as the head trainer of the Wrestle Factory, the one that kind of informs what the culture and the curriculum is, I think if you listen to me, whether it's on this or it's on, it's one of the speeches I gave, it's Colt Cabana's Art of Wrestling, whatever, it gives you a real insight into my methodology. Now, you, you reminded me of something. Like, I, I'm lucky enough to have been involved with wrestling now for 15 years. And my mentor, Dave Dalton, mm -hmm. um, I sent, uh, I, I used to work in a bingo hall, oddly enough. Mm -hmm. um, and I was a bingo caller and I walk in and just off to the side, 
I see a wrestling poster. You, I, I, talk, I call it the wrestling radar. Like I, I'm, I can be in a secondhand store or me and another wrestler were in a secondhand store and both of us saw an Ultimate Warrior glass on a shelf <laughs> behind another glass and just, it was just, we saw it and it just, at that wrestling radar. Mm-hmm. So I see this poster and it's a wrestling poster. I'm like, oh, there's, there's, a, there's a wrestling, because co- I'm from Ottawa, Ontario, and I didn't know that there was an independent culture. Mm-hmm. So I go and I look at the poster and there's an email and I had just finished college for freelance writing. So I get a hold of him and I said, hey, I just finished college. I'm passionate about wrestling. I would love to be involved with wrestling. Uh, I don't want to get paid. I just want to get my name out there. And this is something I'll be passionate about. And he sent me an email back and saying, okay, this is when we're at the gym and, you know, come, come check it out. So I went and I walked up, I said, Hey, I'm Matt Terry. And he's like, ah, yeah. Uh, can you go sit in the loft? Cause there was this loft that looked over and I said, sure. So, cause I got, I got to train people. So I go up there and he finished his training and he leaves and I'm just like, Oh, okay. He forgot about me. So I come back the, the next time they're training and uh, he's just like, oh, yeah, sorry, I left. Uh, listen, I got a train. Can you go up to the loft? You can kind of see where this is going. For three months, I kept coming back. And for a little while, I just kept going to the goddamn loft. Like right. I would show up, go up to the loft. But I got to know the wrestlers. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking to them and, and interacting with them. And, you know, talk, like uh, I got to go to a couple shows with them. Like, hey, why don't you tag along? And. After three months, I remember Dave turning around and like looking at me. He was in the ring training, and he turned around, and looked at me, and he goes, "Are you still fucking here?" And I looked at him like, "Well, I do go home at night." And that's the <laughs> first time. That's the first time I had talked to him in like a month, hmm. like actually, in, like directly talked to him. And he's just like, "Are you still here?" And I said, "Well, I do go home at night." And he, I found out later. Like he gets so many emails. You were talking about the the emails that you get, but he gets so many emails saying, "Oh, I want to do this. Oh, I want to do this. Oh, I want to do this." Like I, I I so much want to be a wrestler. At that he just he lost interest in people just coming in and then just like ah this is not what I want, mm. and you know just they come in guns a blazing and then, you know he puts all this time and effort and passion into it just for them to walk away after you know, a month or two. Do, do you find that there's a lot of that or is it just, is it just, the, is it just where I come from? No, I don't think it's just where you come from. Um, and, you know, I can relate to that. Um, the idea that every day, right, I'm going to get two to three emails or other messages from people that say almost exactly the same thing. They say, I am a lifelong fan of wrestling. Uh, I know that I can be a superstar and that one day I'm going to go to WrestleMania and I want you to help me because I'm so, so passionate about it. And so, you know, in a month or so, right, I might get between 60 and 90 of those emails every month total. Maybe five of them will come to the free workshop, right? So I'm not asking you for anything other than to show up and and, and get in the ring with us. Get in the ring and train alongside of us for a night. See if it's for you. Five out of maybe 80 will actually show up. And of of those five, one of them will actually take a class. So you do get desensitized to these emails that all seem to contain those same key points. I'm a lifelong fan. I'm really passionate. I want this more than anything. It's what I've dreamed about. It's my childhood. Yep, I've heard every permutation of that. And I know one out of every 80 of you will actually ever take a class at my school. So yes, it does become a little desensitizing. What 
ultimately, I think, narrows the field is not that, maybe to a degree, it's that realization that you articulated that, oh, this isn't for me. Usually what I think it is, maybe to get very specific to my experience, is people underestimate the level of dedication and sacrifice it requires because we see all these really well-made, like, video packages or quasi-documentaries, like on the WWE Network, for example, they did one recently on Alexa Bliss called 365, where like a crew follows her every day for a year, and then they make this documentary out of it. You hear these phrases like, you gotta want it, and oh, I'm, I'm so dedicated, and you gotta get ready to sacrifice. How hungry are you? These are all very generic statements that don't inform how incredibly hard that journey is for everybody. And when most people find out what that really means that it's no longer a generic statement that you hear repeated in every documentary and they are confronted by the reality of how steep the the sacrifice is to chase this they realize they just don't have it they don't have it in them and most people don't otherwise there'd be a wrestlemania every day of every week on every continent ever if everyone could do it that loved it there's a reason why right so once I was lucky enough to oversee a tryout camp down at the Performance Center for WWE. They had 40 guys and 40 girls on the floor there. Um, that pool of 40 and 40 was culled from 7,000 candidates who'd filled out an application. 7,000 people wanted to audition. They picked 40 guys, 40 girls, and then hired four of them. 7,000, four of them got the opportunity. But I bet you all 7,000 of them started off their email like, I am a lifelong fan. It's my childhood dream. I am so passionate about this. I know I'm destined to go to rep, blah, 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 blah. Sure. That's everybody's starting point. But the end point for everyone's very, very different. I, I, I've been racking my brain for like the last two minutes. There was a wrestler, and he was talking about people getting into wrestling. And, you know, oh, I'm so passionate. Oh, I'm so this. And he, And it's when you said... You know, there would be a WrestleMania every day of every continent, every city, everything, if everybody who loved it did it. And it reminded me, I wish I could remember, I want to say Seth Rollins, but for some reason I don't think it's Seth Rollins. Mm. Um, he was talking about, you know, all these people say that they're passionate and that they're so into wrestling. But, and he said WrestleMania, he said, there's a reason that there's, I don't know the number he used, but said there's a reason that there's 20 people on this side of the barrier and 100,000 on that side of the barrier. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of people who say they love wrestling, but there's a reason that they're on that side of the barrier is because they don't have that little extra, that little extra desire, that little extra want mm -hmm. to, to finish the job. Mm -hmm. So... Um, do, do you have, like when somebody walks in, we're talking about people coming in and, you know, oh, I, I want to do this. And when people come to this free seminar, have you ever looked at someone and said, they like, just almost love at first glance, just th that's someone that's going to be here like a month from now, two months from now, a year from now, that's the person. Has that ever happened well, to you? I can usually tell by the kind of questions they ask at the end. So We'll train the group for 90 minutes. They're mixed in with my coaches and my, you know, my performers and everything. And then we sit them all down on the bleachers and we entertain any questions they have about what, what went on. 
I like to ask them, you know, was this harder than you thought it would be? Did it meet your expectation? Were you surprised at how well you did? Um, you know, what questions did you walk in here hoping we would answer? Because we'll stay until every question's been answered. When they start asking questions, that's when I can tell. Um, a person who really is going to turn back up on my door two weeks later and say, I'm doing it. Throw me in the deep end, coach. Let's swim. I can tell from, from the kinds of questions that they ask. Um, they're very detailed. They're very specific. Um, and by the time it's over, I, I think I can accurately predict who I'm going to see again and all the ones I know I'll never see again with, with pretty good consistency. I don't, I'm not a big believer in when someone walks in the door, can you tell that one day they're going to be a star? No, I don't think so. I got to see you do what you do. I got I to gotta find out, do you bring the right attitude toward learning? There's a lot of other things. To just look at somebody walking in the door and be like, well, he looks good or she looks good. They'll be a star one day. I don't know. I, I, I'm not a big believer in that. I, I, I believe that it can be done only because, and I, I, I was working for them by this point, like for my mentor. But I remember, I, I was going to say, because I was sitting in the loft and I was looking down. <laughs> it's always that loft, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and they weren't even there very long, but I spent a lot of time in that loft. But I, I remember this wrestler, um, or the, just this kid, and he ended up moving. But I remember, uh, like, he, was, he had come in, and he was just standing there watching the ring. And just the way he stared at it. And you could just see like how he was analyzing and you could see how he was just like in awe and, or it wasn't so much awe. I don't even want to say awe. I just want like the way he was just like, like the passion was there. And I don't know if he ever did it. And mm -hmm. I, I remember saying to someone like, you know, if he sticks with it, but I, he, he moved, I can't remember why he moved because I remember it was something sudden, but yeah. So I just, that's why I asked, like, if I know someone's training, like, do you ever get that? And um, did, do you ever get, like, someone come in? And like you were saying, like, someone comes in, like, they have a look or something about them. Do you ever look at someone and say, like, oh, if I could get a hold of that one? Yes. There are definitely times when you can recognize fairly immediately that someone has a lot of, like, natural talent, a natural aptitude to do it. Um, and that's going to make for a quick training period. You're going to be able to convert them from a prospect into a performer fast, get them to the stage quicker, and get their career like a snowball rolling down the hill. Let's start to build some momentum behind them. Let's get them out. Let's call our connections and say, hey, we got somebody special here. You're going to want to showcase them in your ring, and I'm going to put them in a car and send them to you this Saturday. Um, the, the ideal scenario for me is that each student only incubates exactly the amount of time they have to and not a day longer, and then you got to swim. Like learning a foreign language, you need that immersion. And we're constantly treading that line. Like all my coaches at the Wrestle Factory, do we need this person to incubate just a little longer? Or is it time to grab them by the trunks and throw them in the deep end and say, kid, it's time to swim? So you have done a couple spells at the Performance Center as like a guest uh, trainer, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I've gone down seven or eight times now. Oh, I didn't. I I thought it was like three or four, but what do I know? <laughs> I'm not your agent. Um, how how has that been working? Like, the, it, obviously, your flavor of ice cream 
as you put it, is different than a lot of people's. So, like, why? <laughs> let's be blunt about it. Why would they bring, like, you just seem to not be their flavor. Oh, I agree. So what brought you into the Performance Center? <laughs> There's two now, this is, this is not, this is kind of like, I, I want to, because everyone's like, oh, they're so cookie cutter and everything. And I always say to them, well, they're bringing guys like Mike Quackenbush in. Like, that's not cookie cutter. That's so true. That, that, that raises the question, how do you end up a guest trainer at the Performance Center? Well, there's, there's two answers to that. Um, a more glib answer is, I am a novelty. But uh, I think a more practical answer is, someone who graduated from my wrestle factory and became one of my trainers, Sarah Del Rey, yeah. is now the number two in charge of the Performance Center under Matt Bloom. And I, did, I, I knew she was there, obviously, but I didn't realize she was that high. Yeah. She is okay. the assistant head coach. And a okay. lot of the curriculum Sarah learned has become WWE curriculum. When I walk out on that floor, those kids do the curriculum I taught Sarah. I don't have to adjust what I do. They do my method already. So on the one hand, it's kind of flattering. Like, wow, I know all these exercises because I taught them to Sarah 10 years ago. That's why you do them here. That's kind of crazy. So, but it's also her opening the door. And when they ask, who is a coach that would add value to the performance center? Sarah said, get Mike. So since 2016, when I went down for the first time, um, I've always kind of been welcomed back with open arms. And I'm also in a part of the machine that is under the control of Triple H whose vision is very different than the part of the machine controlled by Vince McMahon. And although my interactions with Triple H are few and far between, to be frank about it, one thing's very clear to me. He does not want it to continue to be a conveyor belt of these cookie-cutter products coming off and being shipped. He wants fresh voices. He wants different voices. He wants that outside point of view. Does he want that to take over the NXT brand and inform everything? I don't think so. Um, he, he'd probably offer me a more intriguing job if he did. But the fact that they do value my input, that they constantly ask for it, and that I'm, I feel a little bit like, and I realize I'm using very sexy terms to describe this here, I'm often the secret weapon in their arsenal. They will say to me, these six people need their character fine-tuned, and you've got five days to do it. Go take them in a room and get to work and do what you do. Awesome. Sometimes I turn up down there and they say, this group of guys, they all need help with the way they connect with the audience. And we don't know how you do what you do, but go do it. Great. So uh, it's very validating for me to feel like they do appreciate my skill set. Does everything I do down there align neatly with what their process is? No way. But I think that's why I bring value to them. Because everyone that's down there, and they have all these wonderful coaches, Terry Taylor, Robbie Brookside, Norman Smiley, Serena Deeb, Scotty Tuhati, et cetera, et cetera, right? All these wonderfully talented performers are on the floor of that performance center. The way I approach the work, though, is almost diametrically opposed to their approach. That fresh voice, I think, is exactly what they need, and they respect that. Otherwise, they would never bring me back. Well, yeah, and they wouldn't – it's uh... – I would assume it's it's harder to deprogram than to program, really. Right. So if they let you have them for a week or two or whatever the term might be, 
you know, if they have to keep deprogramming, like, okay, what, what did Mike teach you? Oh, don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> right. So there, I, I, I would agree. I would take that as very validating. Now at the performance center, um, I'm just asking pr pretty much your opinion because bringing someone in like you, um, I've, I've been lucky enough to interact with wrestlers who, you know, they, 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 they scratch and claw to go to Mexico or to Japan or even to work for you in Chikara sure. or go to CZW, like different cultures. And they, you know, they think this is what's going to build them into a better wrestlers because they're experiencing all the different flavors of ice cream. Is that what the performance center is trying to do is kind of bring those here or to them and say, okay, this is, this is the different aspect to look at it. This is the different flavors. Try it out. Yeah, I think they want to expose their prospects to as many different spices as possible. Um, they a Part of it, too, is you know his age and um, his particular proclivities, but they brought Johnny Saint to Orlando, Florida for six straight months to teach chain wrestling to kids on the floor of the Performance Center. In my mind, he's the greatest escape artist in the history of wrestling. Mm -hmm. What Johnny Saint does, you will probably never see a lick of it on NXT TV. But they understood the value of exposing their people to that style so that they are more well-rounded. And they make a big investment in these people, especially, you know, they heavily recruit from outside the United States and they heavily recruit people from outside of professional wrestling. Some have never seen pro wrestling before they're hired by the WWE. So can you imagine the uphill climb they have to understanding the craft? when they've never seen it before they're dropped inside the performance center and said, go. So they do relentlessly bring in guest coaches. Each year, I think about 50 different guest coaches cycle through that performance center. So they're only doing that, and granted, not all of them get brought back, right? They bring some in, they're not a good mix, right? They don't, for whatever reason, you know? Like, like anything else in life, you're not gonna like every professor you have in college, you're not gonna like everybody that you work with at the office. Some people just don't mix right. Um, but at least they have the chance to expose the kids down there to that and hear a fresh point of view, hear an outside perspective. Hey, this is a guy, like one of the last times I was down there, they had Kendo Kashin from Japan. He speaks 10 words of English, maybe less. Um, is Kendo Kashin a great teacher? I don't know. I couldn't understand most of what he was saying. But they still took a chance on him and said, go out there and teach our kids and let's see if they learn from you. And I, I admire that attitude. There, there's a lot, right, that they do to earn just criticism, but one place that's almost beyond that is the philosophy and attitude of the Performance Center. It's a very pure experience of learning and loving the craft down there. Now, when you're at the Performance Center, because you and I are, are pretty much the same age, mm -hmm. um, older, let's just say that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, well, no, just older as far as wrestling circles, let's say that. Yeah, that's true. There you go. Um, do you do you pay attention at the Performance Center? Like when it's not your turn in the rotation, are you watching what other people are training or teaching? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm a sponge for that stuff. If I can stand there and shadow one of the other coaches, uh, I want to understand why Norman Smiley does what he does. Um, I think one of the guys who's most fascinating to me down there is Terry Taylor. 40-plus years of experience in pro wrestling. He, 
all of the all-time greats, he's probably wrestled them all multiple times. And he has this deeply entrenched traditionalist view of wrestling. And I am the total opposite. Uh, I am the, I'm a, I represent a very progressive point of view. Um, I love to hear why he does what he does. I love then when he's done to ask him, hey, explain to me why. Why do you do it this way? And hey, so here's how I do what I do. And to his credit, despite the fact he can be quite obstinate and he's exceptionally traditionalist. And before I started down there, Terry Taylor had never heard of Mike Quackenbush ever, 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 ever. He always is willing to have a really intelligent and nuanced discussion with me about his approach. He is not averse to hearing other ideas and the, and the merits of them. And the fact that sometimes I just get to sit and chit-chat with a guy that I used to watch on TV to talk about our two almost diametrically opposed approaches to the thing we are both passionate about is one of the best things about going down there. All right. So I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, but I do want to uh, to touch on um, the dedication a little more on the people that are within Chikara. Sure. And I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, the other, or a couple weeks ago, not the other day, a couple weeks ago, I, uh, I had the chance to have Dasher Hatfield on the podcast. Oh. And him and I were uh, reminiscing about a story where he came up to work for Alpha One Wrestling in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And I'm the ring announcer for Alpha One. I see. And he showed up in his mask Mm -hmm. and like I saw him pull up to the building and he's wearing his mask and he entered the building with his mask and he wore his mask the day, the whole day. Mm -hmm. Um, Although I think he told me that he did take it off at one point, I guess I was off somewhere and then put his mask back on when the night was done and went upstairs and left and like said his goodbyes. And I must've left it like around the same time he did because he said, well, there's actually an extension to that story that you are forgetting that they left and they had locked their keys in the car. Oh, so they're calling. Uh, we have CAA up here. You guys have AAA, right? Um, but they're calling whomever to come and open this car. Fans are filing out past him, and the entire time he's wearing his mask. And he was t- like, "This is something that you." Uh, not not necessarily preach, but this is something that you believe in is dedication to your character. Um, where where does that come from? Like, where does that passion come from to be so dedicated to your character? Well, there was an era in wrestling. Maybe it's around the time of the Attitude Era in WWF. That kind of coincides with, and I don't know how aware of this fans might have been at the time, but certainly within the industry, this was a thing where some of the very top people thought it was cool to not care. Um, I think a great, a great example of that was Kevin Nash. This was a guy who, if you ran into him privately or he was teaching at your school and dropped in, um, was a guy who was really big about like, oh, you don't watch wrestling, do you, fellow pro wrestlers? What are you, dumb marks? Why would you care? Like, this is just about making the money and retiring. You're not going to... Does that make you money to watch wrestling? How stupid of you. Um, and you you were made to feel dumb for not... Or, or for how much you cared. But to me as a fan, no matter what I'm a fan of, I'm a fan of a band, I'm a fan of an artist, I'm a fan of a comic book title, I'm a fan of TV show, whatever, whatever you're a fan of. If the people making it don't care, why should I? If you are not at least 
as passionate about it as I, why am I giving that part of me to you, my loyalty or my dollars? Why do I vote for you with my money to support you? I shouldn't. You have to care at least as much as the people who support you do, if not more. And yes, yeah, sometimes that means you will go the extra mile to maintain the mystique around a character so that it remains special. Now, uh, I, I sincerely agree with you. I, was, I believe it was, uh, I've also been lucky enough to have Al Snow on the show. Mm. And him and I were talking about, uh, you know, uh, loyalty to a character, dedication to a character. And I was telling him, like, my, I, the one thing I hate the absolute most is wrestlers, especially heels, that come out during intermission. Mm. And, hey, like, and, like, they're selling their, their merchandise. And they're like, hey, how's it going? Hey, that's a cool shirt. Hey, do you like that comic book? And da, 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 da. When you were just in the ring telling all these people to shut up and, you know, uh, you're stupid and whatever. And it just, I hate that. That's one of my biggest pet peeves in wrestling is when someone comes out and they're just totally different. And I'm right there with you. And like, and I'm not saying if you're telling people to F off and, you know, this to your mother and whatever, I'm not saying you have to stand, come out during intermission and say, you know, F this and do this to your mother and whatever, like tone, tone it down, but you have to kind of maintain something. Like if you're, if you're a jerk in the ring, you should be at least somewhat of a jerk outside. And the, the thing, like I, I do have, like, or there are people in wrestling that I know that, that they just tone it down Maybe they just kind of, you know, if someone comes up to buy a teacher or something, they're not so much of a jerk. They're just kind of like one word answers, just like, you know, somebody walks up and says, hey, that was a great match. Just kind of like, yeah, thanks, whatever. You know, like, well, maybe not say whatever, but, you know, just kind of like, yeah, okay. You know, you're not so much amped up. Mm -hmm. But something that, and it's, it's an anomaly in my head, is fans will get mad at a wrestler sometimes because they're maintaining their character. And that is another pet peeve of mine. Sure. So how is it is, or maybe not how, but is it possible to turn that back around? Because people are so used to it now being able to walk up to a wrestler at intermission or after the show and share a laugh or, you know, in extreme cases, smoke a joint or whatever and have some fun with this wrestler who is supposed to be this they're so used to this now is 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 it possible to turn that back around or is it gone wow i mean that's a great question you're asking there um <laughs> this this exact phenomenon is something i talk about in the first season of my podcast kfabe 2.0 there's an episode called contempt it's about contempt for your audience and i address this exactly um i'm of the opinion that if i go to disney world I want to interact with Mickey Mouse. I do not want to interact with the person inside the Mickey Mouse costume. Yes. And that is the experience you are paying for. And if you, chances are, if you espouse a different idea, right? Like you expect that at the merchandise table, you get to talk to the guy inside the Mickey Mouse costume. Or if you wait around in the parking lot, creeping near somebody's car long enough that you get to interact with the person inside the Mickey Mouse costume, 
you're not going to like the way I run my universe because you don't get that experience, right? Um, you don't have that private interaction. You are not entitled to that. You are not owed that by anybody. Uh, quite the opposite. What you are owed is the seamless maintenance of the fiction. Otherwise, you need to go check out something else. <laughs> so now, is that a, is that a company by company thing, or sure? I think the philosophy will come from the top down. You know, like what is the philosophy? There are some places that do not espouse that whatsoever, but um, I think it speaks to the way that I like to interact uh, with. I like immersive experiences. I like I like the immersion of the Renaissance Fair, for example. Once I set foot on the grounds. Everybody there had better be speaking Elizabethan English, right? Like, that's what I'm paying for. Uh, if not, what did, what did I hand you money for? For the guy that mows the lawn here at the Renaissance Fair? Like, give me the immersive experience that I paid for. Uh, and just a side note here, we'll have to edit, Matthew. I've got another podcast I need to be on in about 60 seconds or so. Okay. Um, I, I've actually touched all my points. Okay, great. So, uh, so how can we wrap it up? Um, I'm just going to say thank you. Okay. That's it. Um, and maybe down the road, you and I can, uh, can sit down and discuss again. Uh, sure. that seems to be a theme on my podcast is that, uh, you know, there's people come back cause I want to just, I, I try to have like just a conversation or just a, let's, you know, rap about wrestling and, um, you know, but again, this has been a, a, a pleasure for me to, to speak to you. And, uh, you know, it's, it's everybody aspires to, and I'm not blowing smoke. Everybody aspires to, uh, to go to WrestleMania. I aspire to, to go to ring of honor and to go to Chikara. Those are the two big ones that I, I want to go ring announce for. So anyway, that, uh, take that as you will, sir. Well, thank you. And, and thanks for having this dialogue with me and for giving me a platform to talk about what I believe and what I'm passionate about for the craft. And I'd be curious before we team up again, uh, I'm thinking particularly the one I just published yesterday. If you've not checked out Till We Make It, my new YouTube channel, which is sort of a broadening of the perspective from Kayfabe 2.0, I would be curious what your take is on how I'm approaching teaching. And, um, yeah, maybe it'll make a jumping off point the next time you and I team up. Well, then that I will definitely do my homework uh, before you and I uh, meet again. Great. Well, Matthew, thanks so All much right, for you... having me on. Thank you very much, sir, and you take care of yourself. All right. Bye now. So that was my interview with Mike Quackenbush. Thank you again to Mike Quackenbush for uh, for doing the show. Um, I didn't really explain during the intro, but um, I, I, had, I had gotten into how punctual he was and then how Skype failed me, and then I had to do some running around, and then you can hear at the end of the interview there where Mike Quackenbush uh, has another interview he has to do, um, which means that essentially Mike Quackenbush probably had like a half an hour to an hour to himself. And he gave me that half hour hour because it took me that long to to get everything. Let's, let's say a half an hour because I'm sure it didn't take me an hour. Um, if it would have taken me over half an hour, I probably would have said, like, ah, screw it. Like, I'm just I, I can't interview Mike Quackenbush. Um, but Mike Quackenbush had some time to himself. As I said, this guy is to the minute as far as his scheduling. And um, I, uh, he still gave it to me. He had some time to himself. He gave it to me. 
I am uh, eternally grateful to Mike Quackenbush. Uh, as I said during the interview, it is one of my goals to uh, to ring announce for Chikara. I kind of threw that out there, and he didn't say anything. I don't know if, what that means. I don't know if I should take that as anything. Ah, well, regardless. Uh, be sure to to, uh, to ch- uh, check out, as I said, timetofight.ca. Check out timetofight.ca, all the past interviews we've done. Uh, this Sunday, I'm going to be in Hamilton, Ontario, for um, Alpha 1, for the Pert 4. And uh, I'm sorry, Prince Isaac is off to the left here, and he's just staring at me. I know he wants more Paw Patrol, so I'm just kind of, yeah. Anyway, so check me out this Sunday. I'm going to be in Hamilton at the Knights of Columbus, 222 Queenston Road, for uh, Alpha One Wrestling's The Purge 4. Uh, a great show, great show, great show. Uh, doors will open at 3.30. The, uh, the, the bell will ring at 4 o'clock. And uh, Hornswoggle is going to be there, and Rich Swan is going to be there, and Sue Young is going to be there, and a lot of great action is going to be there, and a lot of great wrestling fans are going to be there. So if you get the opportunity, get out to Alpha One this Sunday, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, 222 Queenston Road. Doors open at 3.30. The bell will ring at 4 o'clock. Thank you so much for listening this week to It's Time to Fight. And as I say every single week, and I'm going to turn and I'm going to say it right to you, buddy. Isaac, I love you. I love it too.